What do you think was the worst period of human history? I know that's kind of a big question to be asked, the, the worst period of human history. But this question was asked recently of a team of scientists, geologists, who were studying a glacier in Switzerland, and they came up with an answer. Subjective, I'm sure, but an interesting one, no doubt. You see, glaciers are these giant uh, bodies of ice, and uh, they accrue annually. It tends to be a little layer of ice for each year that builds up on top of the one before it, very similar to tree rings. And you can actually kind of study back in history by looking at tree rings like you can the core of a glacier. So these scientists drilled deep down into this ancient glacier and found bands that represented hundreds of years, even thousands of years of geo, uh, geothermal and a, a, a kind of uh, a activity of atmospheric pressures and all kinds of different things they could learn. And when asked, what do you think was the worst period of human history, they pointed to a period of time that began in 536 A.D. 536 A.D., they say, is when, according to the study of these glacial rings, a great volcanic eruption took place in Iceland, and it spewed sulfur and bismuth and a whole bunch of particles into Earth's upper atmosphere that enveloped the Earth in such a thick cloud that for a decade... Humans saw recorded the coldest weather in history up until that time. In fact, one historian, the Byzantine historian Procopius, wrote this about that year. He said, For the sun gave forth its light without brightness, like the moon during the whole year. Well, that sounds like prophecy of an apocalyptic time. It was talking about history. It was a, it was a time period in which the people experienced the coldest temperatures. Snow fell in China in places where it had not fallen before, and the same in Europe. There are records in history of great famines throughout that time because the crops died. Imagine what it'd be like if you never actually saw the full brightness of the sun for more than 18 months in that time. And after that time, there'd be a couple more volcanic eruptions inside of that decade that made it a miserable one to live within. It was during that period of time where the weakened state of the people was exacerbated by even a much worse situation that came upon them in 541, just five years later, the bubonic plague struck the Eastern Roman Empire. Somewhere between one-third and one-half of all the people living at that time in that area died because of that plague. So people point back to that time and say that was the worst period of history in, in what people have called the dark ages, in part because of events like this. Bad times have come, to be sure, throughout the past, and we see bad times regionally in, in our present, and we certainly know that bad times will again come in the future. Worst period of human history is a weighty question. You know, when bad things happen in the world, whether it be weather or famine or disease or war, whatever types of things come upon, if it's a bad something that happens, everyone seeks answers. They cry out to their God for a deliverer. Now, as the people of God, we cry out to Him to deliver us from hardship. But the world who rejects Christ cries out for something else. Many cry out to their government as God to solve their problems. Some seek answers from their philosophers. Others sincerely think that science will save them. And when I say science, I, I don't just mean generally. I mean whichever science or version of science fits their current view of the world. But all those false gods fall hopelessly short of being able to deliver people from their trials. When the greatest minds of the world propose solutions to real problems, imagine for a second, we have real problems, actual problems in our world right now. And many weigh in on those real problems with the solution. They've come up with the solution. And when the greatest minds that we can offer to those situations offer up solutions, they are often so ludicrously irrational so hopelessly ineffective 
And those who promise to solve those problems are so laughably incompetent. It's hard to not laugh at that folly. But the truth is, apart from Christ, that's the best they've got. I want you to remember from previous weeks in our study through Daniel, we've learned that Daniel saw a vision and an angel was sent to him to give him interpretation of this vision. And over the course of the last chapter and a half, this angel has been telling Daniel what will happen to the Jewish people after his day. The angel tells about a period of history that spans from the Persian Empire through the entire day of all the Greek battles back and forth, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, all the way up until the person of Antiochus Epiphanes, who we kind of summarized last week. But we've arrived this week at the point of the vision where the angel is going to tell Daniel about the worst time in the history of the Jews. The worst time. That is not a subjective suggestion by a group of scientists in Switzerland. It is not merely a surveyed kind of poll of those in a room. When do you think was the worst time? No. The Lord himself, commissioning angels, has delivered this to Daniel. The worst time of history for the Jews will come. And Daniel is told of these things to both warn and comfort his people for what would come. If you have your Bibles today, I'd ask you to open to Daniel 12. We're only going to look through the first four verses of this concluding chapter today. We're going to spend some time just kind of in the intro. We're barely going to dip our toe into some of this. Daniel 12 is a chapter that has a whole variety of viewpoints uh, on it from trusted brothers and sisters of the faith. It's a challenging text to be sure. Today we're not going to get into much of the, the debates of what exactly is going on here. We're going to more simply just summarize what's being stated, and we're going to seek the comfort offered to the people of God that is given by the angel here. So I'm going to go ahead and read through verses 1 through 4. I'd ask you to read along in your Bibles in front of you. And then I'm going to pray, and we'll go back through, as we usually do, a verse or two at a time. Let's begin at verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever." But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Let's pray. Lord, as we read these words written so long ago, foretelling in Daniel's time of what would come after him, we hear here of awful things that were coming and warnings and comfort given to the people of God. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be warned, we would be comforted, we would learn from this. The Father, that that you would impress upon our hearts that same hope in you that you laid out for your people here. Let us not be like the people of the world who grasp for solutions that are not you to problems that are far bigger than creatures can handle. Lord, teach us to rely on you first and foremost and help comfort us with these words. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go back to verse 1, and if you'd follow along with me here. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. Pause right there in this introductory sentence to this chapter. Again, we're coming to the conclusion of a chapter and a half long uh, teaching from the mouth of an angel, telling Daniel what to expect after his day. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince. Now, we have heard of this angel before. We've actually heard of this angel. He's been mentioned already uh, prior to this time, but during the same event. It's all part of chapters 10 through 12, which is one big event in Daniel. In fact, when we saw him before, he was battling with a demonic force 
uh, the prince of Persia. I'm actually going to read Daniel 10, 13. It said this, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me, the messenger angel, 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. It was already referenced earlier in this event. Uh, verse 21 of that same chapter said this, But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these demonic powers, against these except Michael, your prince. So there's Michael mentioned twice already. And those were actually the first two mentions of him throughout all of sacred scripture by name. Here in this verse, he is called the great prince who has charge of your people. Now, just to be thorough, you should know that some trusted Bible scholars uh, have actually seen Michael as just a name for Christ in the Old Testament, and perhaps even in his, uh, where he shows up in the New Testament. He shows up two more times there. And so some go, ah, this is Jesus, because he's the great prince who has charge of the people. I'm not persuaded by that view uh, personally, but it makes sense why some might see that, because he certainly is an authoritative character who watches out for God's people. He's only mentioned by name on three occasions in the Bible. This event is one of them. The second time he's mentioned is in the book of Jude in the New Testament. That comes right before Revelation. That's the very end of the Bible. And he's mentioned in a quick moment as contending against the devil for the body of Moses. It's a very interesting kind of passage. It's kind of dropped in quickly. And the last place that Michael is mentioned by name is in Revelation chapter 12, where he's seen in the heavens fighting a great battle with his armies. He's leading like as though he were a general angel. Uh, he's arch, archangel, ar- archangel, bringing his forces, other angels, to fight against Satan and demons. And he wins the battle there. So he's always and only ever mentioned as seen scuffling with demons. Very interesting. So whatever his job is, he's constantly picking fights with demons. That's the only way that we ever see Michael show up in the Bible. Additionally, he's always mentioned in close connection with the Jewish people. Not all of history, not Christians by name who are Gentile perhaps and not just Jewish. It's always in connection with the Jewish people primarily. That's what we see talking about him. That's probably why he's referred to as the great prince who has charge of your people, Daniel, the Jewish people, the Israelites. Now, next week, just to let you know, we're going to spend significant time talking about Michael. Lord willing, that's the plan. We're going to spend a bunch of time in Revelation 12, which I think is going to give us a little bit of an idea of how to view Daniel 12. So we'll look at a little bit more about what we see in there. But for now, let's consider the timeline of what's happening. At that time shall arise Michael. Not much is said about Michael here, just at that time. He shall arise, he shall come to power, he shall take his place, he shall come to the front. So what does that mean at this time? When does this take place? Now again, that is an enormous question. When is this talking about? That actually is the big question about Daniel 12. That's where all the debate uh, circles. When is this period of time that is about to be foretold? That's the big question. And we're going to dig into that answer much more in upcoming weeks because as we get further into the text, we're going to uncover more and more pieces that give us some evidence as to how we should see it. But for now, let's just take note of what is clearly and quickly evident from a cursory reading of this text. We just wrapped up chapter 11. I argued last week that chapter 11 brings us to the end of the life of Antiochus Epiphanes. It actually said of that ruler, who that's what I think that is, in the last sentence in the last chapter, yet he, Antiochus Epiphanes, shall come to his end with none to help him. At that time shall arise Michael. So I take this to mean that this is after the time Antiochus dies. So after he's died, at that time, Michael arises From the perspective of the Israelites, the death of Antiochus Epiphanes was the point at which the Greek empire no longer had control over them. It was the end of that great Greek rulership that had constantly battled over Jerusalem and over the promised land. That was the point at which there was a short period of history where the Hasmonean dynasty, Jewish rulers, kind of took over that landscape. They weren't oppressed by the outsiders in the same way up until the days of the Romans, which would come shortly after. And so I think this is the conclusion of the Greek Empire and what comes after the Greek Empire, the days of Rome. Now, one reason we can see that is because Daniel has already been told a large meta-narrative 
of the ages that will come after him. In fact, he was told this on several different occasions, but one, maybe the most chief, the chief example would be in Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel saw a vision of four beasts coming out of the sea, and he was told later that they represented successive empires, one that would come after the next, world-dominating empires in that, that region where Daniel was seated. The first we described back then was Babylon, the lion. The second was Persia, the bear. The third was Greece, the four-headed leopard. And the, uh, the third was Greece. And then the fourth was, as we argued back then, Rome. The great dominant superpower that came to four after the third was Rome, that fourth beast. Even earlier than Daniel 7, Daniel had been given by God the interpretation of a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had. Remember that dream? Nebuchadnezzar saw a statue, and he was uh, comprised of multiple parts, and his head was gold, his, his chest and his arms were silver, and then the belly and thighs of bronze, and then, uh, and then iron and clay, iron, and then down to iron and clay on the feet. And it was successive empires. That was that vision. And the interpretation given to Daniel to tell Nebuchadnezzar is, it goes Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome. And that's what we think is, uh, those different bands represent. So, Daniel even prior to hearing this vision, knows that there will be four kingdoms. He's already lived through one, Babylon. He's living in the days of the second one, Persia. After him, a third will rise, Greece. And then after Greece, there will be a fourth beast that will come. And it will be during the time period of that empire that God would establish his kingdom on earth in his son, in the son of man, in the Messiah. Now, this chapter, chapter 12, doesn't tell us much about that fourth kingdom. We've already seen that talked about. In fact, it doesn't tell us much about the fourth kingdom, the kingdom that comes after Greece, just like it tells us almost nothing about the kingdom that preceded Greece. It says it's almost focused entirely on that Greek period of history, which brings us up to the beginning of the Roman Empire. So we've already read prophecies concerning those two kingdoms in previous chapters. He's not going to go through those again here. Here we are simply reminded that even though the days of Antiochus would be horrific for the Jews, that Greek era would be bad and would get worse and worse and worse, and it would culminate to the worst ruler over all the people of God in history, Antiochus Epiphanes, up until that time. And even though it got that bad, it was that awful for the Jews, an even worse time will come. And that's the point of this intro to what's happening next. I just told you, the angel could say to them, of all these things that will happen, and it will culminate in the worst things that will happen to your people, the abomination of desolation, all of these terrible things that will happen to your people, but there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. Of all the bad stuff I've told you, something worse will come. Daniel's being told of this day of suffering. And the trouble here is real. It's not rumored. It's not rumors of wars that the worst thing that would happen to the people is that they'd be anxious. This is going to be a worse time of trouble. All the way back to the beginning of that nation, perhaps all the nations, depending on how you look at that, is a time of great suffering such as never has been. But this warning is followed immediately by an encouraging promise. Daniel's not left with a doom and gloom sentiment. Look what follows that sentence. Uh, Such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, at the time of that great trouble, at that time your people shall be delivered. It will be worse. But your people will be delivered. Delivered, And what are, what are the people? Who are the people being referred to here? Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. The elect of God. Those faithful believers of history, both in the Old Testament this day and faithful believers in the New Testament, we can use that same term, the elect of God. Those who put their faith in him. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, the book of life, the record, the list of names of all of those who will someday inhabit the kingdom of God in all eternity. That's who this is about. 
Follow me, if you will, into verses 2 and 3. It'll tell us a little bit more about this deliverance that takes place. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So pause for a quick second here. What do we hear in verse 2? Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who sleep in the dust of the earth, that, that's death. That's being buried into the ground. That's, that's people who have gone the way of the earth. They are done. This is a quick reminder that the trouble that was just told us in verse 1 is not mere anxiety, as I had said, but it's actual death. During that time, people are going to die. Some will die. That's the expectation of what shall happen then. But death will not be the end for them because they shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So again, the first thing to remember there, this is actual death. That troubled time will lead to people dying, but don't be dismayed, Daniel. Don't be dismayed, future generations, reading this preserved word through Daniel. Because a resurrection is coming. And right here in Daniel, we have an Old Testament example of the understanding given to Daniel in the Old Testament, long before the days of Jesus, of a resurrection to eternal life and to hell. Jesus talks about this in John chapter, 25, John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Let me read what Jesus says about this same event. He says, do not marvel at this. He was just referred to as the Son of God. You think you're equal to God? Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, sleeping in the dust, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. See, the two resurrections there. That's people coming out of the earth, physical bodies coming out of the earth for a final moment of judgment. Some will receive life, others judgment. Paul says something very similar in Acts 24. He refers to the same thing. In fact, when Paul makes mention of this, I'll, I'll read this for you in one moment, he's standing before Felix a governor at that time in Caesarea. He was brought into custody. He was arrested uh, because the Jews wanted him dead. The Jews were furious with him. And he tries to make a connection here in this verse to go, listen, what I'm starting here with is what they believe also. He kind of kicks that off. So listen to what he says in Acts 24, 15. That he has a hope in God, he says, which these men, these Jews, themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So that's what he's pointing to. He's pointing to that moment of final judgment where vindication will be complete, where all judgment will be dealt with. And those who get eternal life get it granted there, and those who get judgment from God get that punishment handed to them then. So some come to everlasting life, some to shave shame and everlasting contempt. The deliverance then that is being referred to here, that is being foretold to Daniel concerning his elect brothers and sisters, it is a spiritual deliverance. In fact, consider the way that the language is being utilized here. Sleep in the dust, again, refers to death. But even the term sleep in the dust of the earth before it talks primarily about those who come to eternal life, same kind of language as we see in the New Testament, the believers who die, sleeping. Why? Because to the believer, death is as harmless as sleep. But they die. It's an actual death. They, they, they didn't make it through that period of history. And yet, how is it that they can be delivered? How can somebody who's already died be delivered? That's the idea. There's a spiritual deliverance taking place, a deliverance from the judgment seat of God. It even says here, they will shine like the brightness those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. I do not believe that that means that a wise person in the day of those trouble will start to glow. I don't think that's the idea. I think it's symbolic. It's clearly this, this poetic picture of what will be true about these people in a glorified state. After their bodies have been resurrected, they've, they've been given new bodies, their soul and body united again at the end, after the coming of Christ. 
That's the brightness referred to there. And the next sentence, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That's yet another helpful indicator. This is a forever and ever result. Whatever type of deliverance is being talked about there lasts forever and ever. This is not merely a military victory being promised. This is not even a miraculous preservation of physical life. It is a promise that throughout this time of great trouble, even those who die will be delivered to eternal life. That's the promise. And this is so important for us to see because the comfort given to Daniel is not that these people in his future will receive relief from pain and struggle and suffering and tribulation of the kind that they won't experience it. They might die, but they will be delivered by something far worse in the end. If you're not a believer today, you need to know this is what we proclaim. We want for you to be counted among those who are awakened resurrected to everlasting life and not to shame and everlasting contempt. That's it. All humans in history are going to one of those two, eternal life or everlasting contempt. That's the options. And as human beings born as image bearers of God, yet sinful, all of us deserve everlasting contempt. All of us have sinned against God and warrant his just wrath, his just punishment. It's what we deserve. In fact, if the books of our works were written on our behalf and were read on our behalf, God would read the works we have done, see that we have fallen short of his glory, and we would then get everlasting contempt. That's what we deserve. And it's what you deserve. And if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, your only hope is to maximize your pleasure today. Because in eternity, everlasting contempt waits those who don't believe. You see, the Father sent his perfect son to live a perfect life and to bear the penalty, bear the wrath, bear the contempt due to all of those who will believe. So that the punishment due to us, contempt from God, would be borne by Jesus Christ on the cross. And if we repent of our sins and turn in faith to him, believe on him for salvation, we will have eternal life. I just read to you from John chapter 5. I want to read for you another portion from John chapter 5. Jesus' words. He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. It's amazing the way that the Bible talks about eternal life as something that we will experience in full in the future and yet something that we have presently. That's present language. He has passed. The believer has passed from death to life. Our sinful nature is what's made us spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we were dead in our sins and transgressions in which we once walked. And that's the state of anyone who does not have saving faith in Jesus alone. You need to believe on him for salvation. Be made alive. And what awaits you in the future is everlasting life. That's the promise. The angel's about to finish up his speaking to Daniel. Verse 4 gives us the final words from the angel to Daniel. He's about to finish. He's been talking nonstop this whole time. He hasn't paused and said, have you got that? Any questions? Nothing like that. He's just telling Daniel all these things that Daniel's recording. Now he gets to the final thing that he's going to say, the final instruction. Daniel, you've heard about all these things. Here's what you do, Daniel. Look at verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. This is the command given to Daniel. Daniel's not going to be around during the days that he's been talking about. He's going to be long gone. He's an old man at the time that he's writing this stuff down. He's lived through a few different dynasties already at this point. In fact, he was already told, this is going to happen many days from now. Long after you're gone, this stuff is going to take place. So what's he supposed to do? Shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. What does that mean? 
If we were to look at the English words there, we, we could be quickly swayed. Oh, that means put it away somewhere where no one will see it. And finally, at the end, you pull it back out. That's not the idea of the, the language here that's going on at all. Shut up the words quite simply means stop your writing. Done. We're finished. No tampering with it. No adding. No taking away. And actually, there's an interesting kind of connection being made here because Daniel is filled with apocalyptic literature talking about these ends in history. Some, sometimes the ends of Jewish age, sometimes the ends, the final age at the days of the Antichrist and beyond, all the way at the farther end, even after us. And at the conclusion of this book, he's told, shut up the words, close it down, don't add, don't take away. That's the idea that's in mind. And that's exactly what's actually said in the book of Revelation. When you get to the New Testament version of Daniel, essentially, uh, the, the, the place in the New Testament that most draws upon Daniel is the book of Revelation, where John is told of a vision of the future that he's supposed to record for his people, those who will come long after him, that we would be encouraged by it. And when we get to the closing chapter of the entirety of the Bible, go to Revelation chapter 22, we will see a command there to not add anything to or take anything away. Why is it that in these apocalyptic books, these prophetic books, are the ones that give us that special significant warning? Why? Because this stuff's challenging. This stuff's hard. And it would be so easy for us in history and over the course of time as we've looked at these texts, go, you know what? This is too hard. Let's just, let's just kind of take this out, either literally or in our minds. Let's just not count this. Let's just not consider this. It would also be easy for us to insert our own human commentary. Ah, uh, sure, that's probably what this is. Let's just add some more stuff in. No, it's these books that are the hardest to understand that we are given these encouragements. Shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. That seal the book, that's like the, the image, image of uh, Daniel finishing writing the scroll. Roll that scroll. Stop writing. Done. Pen down. Roll up that scroll. The king puts his signet ring pressed upon that, that, that wax seal to give his authoritative approval of what has been written. In fact, the sealing here would be a way to preserve the text for future generations. Copies would then be made. They'd go out, but the original would be preserved so that it could always be tested against that. That's the idea. It's in my, it'd be a little bit of our equivalent of laminate this thing, right? Because this is something worthy of holding to. Don't forget what's been written here. And then he adds this. He's going to record this, write this down, shut up the word, seal it, until the time of the end. Daniel, what you're writing will still be around by the end. That's a pretty amazing uh, statement of the preservation of the text. If you ever talk to somebody who's kind of like, well, yeah, certainly the Bible's been corrupted over time. We can't trust it. What's going down? Really? God promised that it'll last until the time of the end. I'll trust God that he knows how to preserve his text. It's a pretty amazing statement if you think about it. But what comes next is, many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. What does that mean? Well, the image here is as things heat up, as the things prophesied here come to pass and people are experiencing them, they begin going, what do we have to warn us of this? What do we have to compel us how to act? How should, what's to instruct us? Remember, there's no prophets in, in, the, in the days coming after Daniel. They were wondering, what are they supposed to do? Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. That doesn't mean just knowledge generally, like our heads get bigger. It's actually, there's a missing definite article in English here. It should be the knowledge, the knowledge. It's talking about what has been here. The actual knowledge of these things is what's in mind there. And so the image is of these uh, Jewish people uh, experiencing the hardships that are foretold here, and them saying, wait, 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 this is, this is Daniel. This is, get the scroll, get the Daniel scroll. And someone runs to go get the scroll and runs back with it, running to and fro. And they, they bring that knowledge and they unroll it and look at it and go, this is what was told. This is what was supposed to happen. God knew it. He, he ordained for this to happen. He's working this out. And this is what we are to do. Remain faithful. Be wise. We are to make many others righteous and that's the idea in mind. And in the end time, as this is taking place, these people will especially need the encouragements from Daniel as they get there. The Lord doesn't want to surprise us with the kind of things that are coming upon. It's not just, don't worry about it. I got it all figured out. You'll see when you get there. No. He prov provides a preparation. Gives them an example of what's to come. Tells them what it's going to go down. Even gives scrupulous details of much of this and then encourages the people. 
And what is the encouragement? What is the comfort from this text? You see, Daniel was just forewarned about times of awful suffering for his people. If this was a bedtime story with your kids, this would not end with, and they all lived happily ever after. In the history of it, it'd be like, oh, and then it ends with, and then it gets worse. Good night, right? But the Lord doesn't do that. He lands with comfort. Yes, it's going to get worse. It's going to go really bad. In fact, when it gets so bad that that these crazy, awful, terrible circumstances in history, the ones we can call the abomination of desolation, these archetypes, even other things that could happen in history, these wicked rulers who hate the Jews with all their guts, it will get worse. It'll get worse even than that. And here's the comfort. Here's the encouragement that they're offered. The hope of eternal life. The hope of eternal life. As believers, if you've ever read the Bible and you see that language coming and you know that eternal life is secured through Jesus Christ, we don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve to be rescued from our sins. We don't deserve to, to get out of hell in any way. And yet God in his perfect kindness and his goodness and his grace and his mercy through belief in Jesus Christ offers salvation to us, offers eternal life to us. But that is the chief hope for the people. The New Testament repeats this exact same kind of thing. Things are going bad. It's going to be painful. You may even be tortured and betrayed, and you may even die. But here's your hope. Look at Romans 8, 18, for example. For I considered, this is the Apostle Paul writing, he suffered much. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with, what? The glory that is to be revealed to us. That's the encouragement. So here's the Apostle Paul telling, consider these present sufferings. Don't worry, if God loves you, he'll make them go away. No. What we are to do when we endure suffering now is to compare what we are experiencing presently, no matter how bad those sufferings are, and compare that suffering with the glory of what is to come. That's what we're to do. That's the comfort. The comfort is that this has an end, and this doesn't. No matter how awful and terrible this is, it is temporary, and it is being used by God for your good. And someday, ultimate vindication will take place. That is the encouragement. Not that the people would be delivered from earthly oppression, but that they would be delivered to eternal life. We so often want, very naturally so, for physical deliverance from our trials. Lord, this suffering I'm going through, this pain of my body, this sickness, this illness, the, 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 the emotional struggle of a loss that I'm experiencing or going through, uh, just the, the burden of, of, of the cares of life or watching the world around me burn and what I'm going to pass to my kids. There's a whole bunch of different ways we can internalize this. And then, of course, persecution, actual physical punishment and imprisonment and the, the confiscation of property and even death for faithfulness. And we cry out to God, we want deliverance from those things. And and listen to me, it is right to pray for deliverance from those earthly things. Lord, deliver me from this this pain. Provide for me in this moment. Help the suffering end. That is right to pray for that. But the promise that is being given for the worst of times is a deliverance unto eternal life. It is a spiritual delivery. And it comes only through Jesus Christ. Look at Colossians 1, 13. New Testament deliverance verse here. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what he does. That's what the father, speaking of the father, that's what the father does for all those who believe in him. He's delivered us, believers, from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. And there's so much to be said about the tenses. Is this present? Is this past? Is it future? Is this saying, if you're a believer, don't worry, you will never experience pain? No. Is it saying that the deliverance is once, 
you've only ever been delivered once. There's nothing else coming in the future. No, there's a deliverance in the future too. But look at the past tense of this particular verse. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has, past tense, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. What does that mean? It means that it is presently true of the believers, both in Paul's day and ours. This is why this is so important. Two people can live in the same time, under the same circumstances, experience the same earthly hardships, and one be under the domain of darkness and the other in the kingdom of Christ. This means that our observation of what happens to a person externally does not determine whether they belong to Christ. It does not determine their citizenship. It does determine their citizenship. We don't go, ah, they went through hard stuff. They must hate God. No, that's not what's being said. That's not what's being said about these Jewish people who will have to experience all kinds of things. Some of them may die buried in the dust of the earth, but shall arise to eternal life. We must be so careful to judge what we see from the outside and what's taking place with people. When we talk about kingdom building as a church, this is what we're talking about. When we make disciples of all the nations, we are taking part in this, the transfer of people from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. The hope of eternal life is only, only for those who are citizens of Christ's kingdom. That's it. How do you, how do you get this eternal life? Only if your hope is in Christ as a citizen of his kingdom. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. We are delivered, and we are delivered through Christ alone. Now, Here is why I think this is so significant for us in our day, to be reminded by this as we look back in what was said in Daniel's day, as what we have to look forward in our own, and just what our present reality is now. Look with me at 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Paul instructs the Thessalonians to wait for his son from heaven, the father's son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from what? From the wrath to come. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You need to know there are many believers today who see the promises of deliverance in the Bible, the kinds of stuff where you looked at, the few New Testament verses, Old Testament passages like that in Daniel. Bad stuff's coming, but he will deliver your people. Many people look at those promises of deliverance, and they take those verses to mean that God will rescue us out of our physical, earthly trials today. But there is no such promise in the Bible. And what do you think happens? If some people look at verses like that and they go, ah, I'll get out of the trials, then what happens when they endure the trial? A whole bunch of nuttiness. God is not strong enough to get you out of this. You have to get yourself out. Or how about, how about you're not faithful enough? If only you are faithful enough, then you'd get out of the trial. That's the kind of thing that comes. That's the kind of error that is produced from thinking that the promise is from physical deliverance. That's not the promise. The promise is of a spiritual deliverance. This is why it's so significant that we see Christ dead on the cross, died, crucified, tortured, murdered there. Sinless son of God on the cross. That our image of deliverance is physical death. That's what it is. We're going to have communion in a little bit. And we're going to, as taking this communion, we do it as a proclamation of the Lord's death until he comes. It's so significant to look. What's the symbol of your deliverance? The death of the perfect one. The death of the Son of God. How is death a symbol of our deliverance? How is that securing that? Because we're talking about a spiritual deliverance. Over and over again, it's told to us that we will suffer as Christ suffered. That if he did, how much more will we have to endure that? Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why? Because the promise is not to deliver us out of suffering now. The promise of deliverance is ultimate. And it is for a day to come. Do not fall to the error that somehow we should see these promises as I ought not struggle. 
No, not at all. Notice even in this verse, notice the tense again. People are to wait for Jesus, but the delivering is present. It's not Jesus who will deliver us. It's a present tense verb. He delivers us. He's the Jesus who does this delivery. He delivers us, believers. And what, does he, what is he delivering us from? What has he delivered us from? He's in the process of delivering all who will ever believe, all throughout history, as they come to saving faith in him. What does he deliver us from? The wrath to come. And there it is again, the wrath. That is what we need to be delivered from. The wrath deserved for all of those who refuse to accept the truth and so be saved. We deserve the wrath of God as sinners. But in Christ, we are delivered from that wrath. That is the promise. There are many believers today who are looking forward to and hoping for a physical deliverance from earthly trouble in the end. A physical deliverance from earthly trouble, tribulation. I do not think that that is right. I do not believe that there is a promise of that physical deliverance in the future. I think it is a spiritual deliverance. I think that's what we are waiting for. Not that God would go, okay, fine, this group of Christians does not need to suffer. All those millions who come before, they will have to suffer. You guys don't have to. I don't think that that's what the Bible says. The promise is for delivery from something, not from earthly trials, but from the wrath to come. I want to read for you from Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 through 15. This is this picture of final judgment. This is, this is the judgment seat of Christ where people are finally judged according to their works if their name is not in the book of life. And if their name is in the book of life, they're judged only by that. I'm going to read for you what happens there. The apostle John writes what he saw in the vision. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. So there's a whole bunch of books opened. We're going to find out that's books of the deeds of the people. And then there's one other book open, and it is the book of life. And if your name is in the book of life, you go to heaven. And if your name is not found in the book of life, you'll be judged according to what you have done. I'll keep reading it. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. That's a bit of that awake language we just saw there. It was sleeping in the dust of the earth. They, they awakened uh, uh, to the resurrection of life or death. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Quite simply, if your name was not in the book of life, you are judged according to your works. And on that account, every human being in history will be judged. No one is perfect. No one is righteous. No, not one. All will be judged. And only by faith in Jesus Christ alone is our name in the book of life and, not, and that we will not be judged by the book of works. The Old Testament believers in the days of Daniel writing are to put their hope in the same thing as those who'd come after them and the same thing as you and I. When we are faced with present hardships or when we see future trouble on the horizon, what must be our response? That we would be expected to be delivered out of that hardship? No, whatever hardships that we are to face, it would be nothing compared to the everlasting contempt that will come to those who do not surrender to God. The Bible does not promise us physical deliverance from our struggles. In fact, the repeated exhortation in the New Testament is that we most certainly will face trials, but our hope is in something eternal. Everlasting life that comes through Christ alone. In a moment, we're going to take communion, which points to that picture of the death of Christ, who through that death delivers us to eternal life. And then we're going to sing. The song we're going to sing is written by Horatio Spafford. It's called It Is Well. It's a famous uh, Christian hymn. Christians have sung it for a long time now. And written by a faithful brother, it echoes this exact notion. We're going to see, so we're going to sing three verses of this together. The first verse talks about the struggle of present hardship and how 
even in the experience of that hardship, and this brother lost his, his wife and his kids in a horrible way, wasn't even present to, to be there when it happened. They died on a shipwreck. And even through that pain, that present struggle, he could say, it is well with my soul. And then it points to the, the cross and the, the glory of it and the fact that all of our sins and the struggle of our sins are what binds us and hurt us and, and, and cause even more struggle and how we can say, because of Christ, who's taken away our sins on the cross, it is well. And that third verse is going to point to that eternal reality. Yet again, it is well with my soul. Why? Because someday all this will be done. My faith shall be sight. And then we will forever adore the Lord and say it is well with my soul. I want to close our time together this morning. Just a passage from 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. Peter says this. Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery trial, at the fiery trial, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Oh, I'm a Christian. Why would I suffer? No, it's not strange. But rejoice. Why? Because pain is great? No. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad. When? When his glory is revealed. Your suffering today, storing up greater joy for that final day. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good and kind to us. Help us to read of your promises and be encouraged by them. Help us to not think wrongly about what your word has offered to us and has told us will come. Lord, just as those who've come long before us, those who came in ancient days, those who came in the Jewish history and days of Daniel and after, Lord, so many difficult things have happened to those who have been faithful. And they've endured so much. Lord, I pray that we would be the kind of believers that would fall right in line with that level of faithfulness. That even when bad things happen to us, and even when rumor of bad things happen to us, we'd be quick to be comforted by the promise of eternal life. Lord, we can only do that if we genuinely believe, if we have faith in you and what your word says. So help us to trust more and more every day that we would live that way and so be a beacon of hope for those around us. And that we'd give you glory and we'd be filled with joy. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.